Welcome to another episode of the Federal Newswire Lunch Hour Podcast with your host, Andrew Langer. Well, welcome everybody to another edition of the Lunch Hour with the Federal Newswire. I am your host, Andrew Langer. So glad you could join me today. And joining us today, all of us today, is someone I've been dying to talk to. Uh, Her name is Heather Lauer. She is the Executive Director of People United for Privacy. Uh, Heather, uh, we're right on the, the, the cusp of Free Speech Week and wanted to chat with you about that. We are seeing a real assault on free speech. We're going to talk about the privacy aspects uh, of it, but talk about where where America stands with free speech generally right now. I think people have more of an awareness of how important it is now more than they have in a long time. Um, you know, when we go out and talk about our issue of protecting donor privacy, five years ago, that was kind of on people's radar, but they sort of understood it, sort of didn't. Now they really understand it. Cancel culture has become real for people. Targeting has become real for people. And I think there's just much more of an appreciation for for why these rights matter. Yeah, I was at the, the uh, IWF uh, 30th anniversary gala. And yeah. Vivek Ramaswamy uh, uh, talked uh, about this, uh, about these issues. Why do you, do you think that there's been an acceleration in this issue of cancel culture over the last few years? Where does this, where is this coming from? Why are we, why are we, why are we at this moment right now? There is. And I mean, there's no question that social media has driven a lot of this. People have Mm. more access to the channels where they can have these conversations and have these fights and target people and out people and, um, you know, it just, people, there wasn't an ease of access to the platforms in the way that there, by a few years ago in the way that there is now. And so I think that is just one way in which it's easier for somebody to get, to get targeted at this point. Um, you know, and, and I think that's just one element of it, though. I mean, our political climate is obviously in a different place than it was several years sure. ago. And so that's enabling a lot of people and empowering people. And there's just kind of a vicious cycle to it. You know, the media has a self-interest in having more access to donor information so they can go after people that they dislike. And so we're seeing more and more articles about, you know, nonprofit donors and other people that the, that members of the media might not agree with being outed and the topic of stories and being targeted in ways that um, maybe just was not happening several years ago. So let's let's talk about the work that you guys are doing at, at People United for, for Privacy, because it is such such vital work. Let's start here with the the precept and the importance of people being able to support organizations anonymously, something that has been a, a bedrock principle of American constitutional law, certainly affirmed by the Supreme Court, not just you know in the NAACP versus Alabama decision, but then in the AFP uh, Foundation versus Bonta decision. Talk, talk about talk about that, and, and 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 then also talk about the how over the last five six decades we've really seen a sea change. I know that. People United for Privacy is a is a is a nonpartisan organization. You're really trying to work hard to reach uh, cross party lines to get legislation passed, but there seems to have been a sea change in the in the civil libertarian world uh, on these issues. Talk about that as well. Sure. I mean, this issue goes even beyond you know the NAACP case in 1958. This goes back to the founding of our country. This is a first principle for us: the idea that we have the ability to speak anonymously and associate with others who share our beliefs. This is something the founding fathers cared about. And so that is just 
one of many reasons why it's disturbing to us that we're having this debate. I mean, this is something that this is the foundation of our country. This is something we all should just fundamentally agree on, which is that even if we disagree on every other issue on the planet, we should agree on the right to disagree. And so, you know, the first case that's kind of notable in this space as it relates to nonprofit donor privacy is that NAACP v. Alabama case in 1958, where the state of Alabama was trying to force the NAACP to disclose their donors so that they could target and retaliate against those people who were supporting the civil rights movement. The Supreme Court unanimously um, decided in favor of privacy in that case. And that kind of set the course, I think, for what we've seen now over the last several decades. And there have been multiple cases where this issue has come up. The Supreme Court's always been on the side of privacy for the most part. But, you know, again, last year, the AFPFB Bonte case, another example, um, maybe not unanimous, but it was a pr very strong pro-privacy decision in terms of affirming that we have the right to associate with others privately and that, um, just because the government has some interest in being able to target non, this very small percentage of nonprofits that might be doing something wrong doesn't mean the rest of us should have to give up our rights to um, give to or to have the ability to get to give to organizations privately. So well, no, so so okay, because you know, so now you know, in the modern parlance, we've spent a lot of time talking about transparency. And what I call the push-pull between transparency and, and and privacy, and you have folks who are saying, "Well, you know, we need to we need to know we need to know who is supporting these organizations." And I'm, yes, I'm pounding the table as we're as we're talking about this. Um, but but the issue the issue comes down to, and I I want to know your thoughts. Like for me, transparency we need transparency when it comes to governmental operations, right? How the taxpayers' money is being spent. But I want to know about how you draw this line and and this 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 where where transparency um, uh, meets privacy. It's a very clear line for us. Transparency is for government. Privacy is for people. Um, yes. You know, if if a it, there's no question that we should have more access to what our government and elected officials are doing. We should be able to see what how those decisions are being made, and that's kind of what's behind the fact that we do have to disclose who donates to political candidates. You know, there, when you're giving money directly to a political candidate, there's a sense that you might have, especially a certain monetary number, might have some sort of influence over what sort of decisions those elected officials are making. That is extremely different from people who donate to nonprofit organizations who are out advocating on behalf of issues. Um, those aren't people who are directly giving to an elected official who's in a decision-making uh, position. And so it, the two need to be kept separate. Um, they aren't just because we feel like one group might have more influence than another group doesn't mean that they don't have the right to speak and that, they don't, that their members don't have a right to support that speech anonymously. You know, it, it, for me, it's one of the things that I think about is, you know, in terms of the political giving issue, right, which is when people give to candidates or campaigns because they're going to have a direct personal benefit and it benefits them or to a very small group of people alone. But when you have people who are giving to campaigns or causes that have a general benefit, a general applicability, and, and again, it comes down to the transparency of the government operations, right? So you don't have the transactional nature. Somebody gives $50 million to a particular political party because they know that that political party is going to support efforts that are going to make this person $250 million down the road. That's the, the transactional nature of this. But if it's something that's going to benefit everybody, I'm sorry, go ahead, Heather. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a key point. And it goes even further than that, which is that, 
you know, people who can contribute ten or fifty dollars to a cause who may not have a direct line to an elected official do have the ability to come together as a group and support a cause that can speak on their behalf and who can spread their ideas and have a voice for them that they might not have on their own. And so it's not even so much about influencing what political, uh, what, what elected officials are doing. It's about giving, it's about democracy. I mean, it's about right. giving voice to a people who wouldn't otherwise have a voice and who can't have that sort of influence on their own. But when they come together as a group, they can make a difference. And, and talk about this because one of the things that your opponents talk about is, well, you know, we, we need to know if you, if these are really important issues, you should be willing to append your name to it. You know, you should be willing to, to give in public so we all can see. And, and they tend to couch it in terms of big dollar donors, but talk about the dangers that accrue to small individuals who give these small dollar amounts. I don't mean small physically, but people who give small dollar amounts to political campaigns or organizations and the history. What has happened to people when they've been uncovered uh, giving to giving to causes that that the majority may not like? And remember, right, free speech, the, the protections against uh, the protections for speech, free speech exist to protect ideas that the majority doesn't hold, otherwise they wouldn't need protecting. Go ahead. Well, this is the funny part about yeah. what our opponents say on this issue. They talk about needing more transparency so they know what Charles Koch and George Soros are donating to, yet they seem to have a pretty good handle on what Charles Koch and George Soros are <laughs> donating to. So That's right. I'm not really sure what else they're going to learn about those big targets with donor disclosure. Maybe some details they didn't have, but I mean, there's not anything to be revealed there. Um, the concern is absolutely of those who are donating five, 10, 50, even $1,000 or $5,000 to an organization. Those people don't have the ability to protect themselves when a mob shows up at their door and is upset about something that they support. And we have countless examples from across the country of this. There's a, an example we talk about frequently of a waitress in California who in um, 2008 donated $100 to a ballot initiative and it was something that upset a lot of people. They showed up to a restaurant, they picketed, they disrupted the business. She ultimately lost her job. Over a hundred dollar donation. Most Americans can't afford to lose their livelihood right. over small dollar donations to causes that they care about. And that's what's going to shove people out of the political process. If they're forced to disclose their donations, activists can get their lists of names. They can go out and target them in person or on social media or in whatever way. And it's going to silence those voices at the end of the day. Donor disclosure is not going to silence the voices of people who are donating millions of dollars to these organ to various organizations and who can protect themselves. So let's let's talk about this because it, it especially in the last few years. In fact, let's start here. Let's talk about the use of law enforcement as a tool to chill speech. I mean, I you, you know, the People United for Privacy is about about protecting privacy and speech. But since we're on the the precipice of Free Speech Week. Talk about 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 the the, the this really this um, it's very disturbing to me the the use of law enforcement we saw this with um, regards to organizations that were expressing skepticism about climate policy um, uh, attorneys general subpoenaing organizations we're seeing this with organizations that are active on other issues in states talk about this. Getting the list of donors is just the tip of the iceberg for this process. That's just where it starts. Once you have the list of donors, then what are you doing with that list of donors? Um, 
And when an elected official has, an access, has access to a list of people with whom they disagree, and they have the government behind them, they have relationships with law enforcement, they have relationships with an attorney general, it just opens up a can of worms in their ability to go out and target people who are on the opposite side of them as an issue and to prevent those people from being able to, at, at best, preventing them from being able to speak on issues they care about, but at worst, targeting them in ways that might actually get them thrown in jail or might um, cause significant harm to their livelihood. And so it's extremely dangerous to give this sort of information to those who are in power and who have the power to punish people if they don't like what they're talking about. Yeah, we've seen this. And, and the end result, right, is, of course, people will just will, will shut up. I and mean, that's the goal. The goal is certainly is to get organizations like our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute to stop talking about climate policy and start stop raising questions about climate policy. Um, so, you know, yeah. we, we certainly see that there. So let's, I want to talk a little bit about the, the hypocrisy side of things. Uh, and there's a slippery slope that's involved there as, as well. But you have um, uh, certain individuals um, that uh, and organizations that are angry. They've coined the phrase dark money. I know you and I share a real antipathy towards that term dark money. It's got some real negative connotations, obviously. Um, but the, at the same time, you have folks who are decrying dark money, dark money, and I'm using air quotes for those of you who are listening, yes. so-called <laughs> dark money. Um, they're, they're, they are they are you know, rolling in it. They're using it to, to the nth degree. Uh, talk a little bit about that. I think we absolutely have to call out the hypocrisy of this. I mean, it's been documented and reported on many times over the last couple of years that Democrats outspent Republicans in this area. Um, and so it is pretty difficult to listen to a group of people go out and propose the expansion of donor disclosure while they're equal while they're also taking advantage of this situation. So um, it makes you wonder about their motives and about the, the sincerity of this. But it's, it is, I think, appropriate for us to call out that hypocrisy. I think it's important for us to have a conversation about it. I think it's a slippery slope for us to begin, for conservatives to begin coining the term dark money and embracing that as a term that we should use. First of all, there's not a consistent definition of it. There's not a legal definition of the term dark money. It's kind of about feelings more than it's about facts. But beyond that, it's, um, it's a term that was invented over a decade ago to target conservatives specifically. I mean, it, it was meant to shut down conservative groups and, and ideas and um, issues. And so for us to attempt to turn that around on the left and um, use it as a way to target what they're doing. I, again, it's fine for us to call it the hypocrisy of what they're doing, but this is a dangerous game that has the potential to backfire. Because once you've identified a problem, what, which is, quote, dark money, then you have to start looking for solutions. And so that's what led to, a couple weeks ago, Chuck Schumer forcing a vote on the Disclosure Act in Congress, because Republicans have been out talking about dark money. He's like, well, then let's have a vote about dark money. Um, you know, where does it go from here? Maybe Republicans can start to question whether or not donor privacy is important. And five or 10 years from now, maybe we're unfortunately fighting people on our own side of the aisle on this issue. And at the end of the day, conservative organizations are going to be the ones that are harmed by disclosure more than left of center organizations. You know, the media, if it has access to a list of targets, that's, that's who's going to get hit. Right. And then that's, I want you to flesh that out a little bit, because I think it's important to sort of underscore why that is, because it's not the issue of, you know, left-leaning groups are going to raise more of this money um, and conservatives are, are raising a little less, but it's that it's that the, the left has the media in their pockets, yes. 
you know, in order to, to talk about examples of this, because we've seen this happen certainly with donors to Alec. As a, that, to me, that's the that's the most stark example. But but talk about that. Donors to Alec. The mo- a more recent example of this, though, which is just so frightening. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with um, the trucker protests that were happening in Canada earlier this year. Um, against vaccine mandates. There were some Americans who donated to that cause. Um, A media outlet got a hold of that list of donors through a hacker who obtained the list illegally. That's right. And um, that resulted in a series of articles calling out and attacking people who had given like $10 and $100, very small dollar amounts to this cause that they cared about. I mean, major new, the Washington Post is where this started and they just grasped onto it and ran with it. And they didn't care that they were potentially causing harm to small dollar donors. And there were some larger donors who were in the mix as well, but this was a, this was a very concerted attempt to go out and target people who had given very small amounts to this cause. And so that is a very good example, even though the list in that case was obtained in a legal way. It's a good example of what would happen if lists were just available legally for the media to go out and use whenever they want to write a story about a hot button topic or something that they disagree with. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Listen, let's shift gears. I want to come back to what you guys are doing for free speech week and, and sort of what your plans are down the road. But, you know, as I, I was saying before we came on, you know, I want to want to talk a little bit more about you, uh, you know, talk about what you've been up to. You're a fifth generation Idahoan, which is amazing to me. But when you were a what, a, a junior or senior in high school, you spent you spent a, a, you spent time in Germany and that gave you this love of travel. Talk, tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Now we'll get into bacon in a second, but yeah. Yeah, no, I'm a I'm a Idaho native. Um, I my family my my last name's Lauer, so half of my family is from Germany, and um, I took German. The, I studied the German language when I was in high school and college because it just was interesting to me to learn more about my. Uh, family and to have that connection and to be able to do some research. I actually have been working on a research project this week, genealogy project, where I've been communicating with people over in Germany about what we're doing. So it's been a, it's been useful to have that language knowledge. But um, because I studied it in high school, I ended up doing a, an exchange program in Germany between my junior and senior years of high school. Um, and that is kind of that was my first taste of international travel, and it became um, something that I've been passionate about. So that's where I spend a lot. That's what I spend a lot of my free time doing. I've been to all seven continents. I've been to over forty countries, um, and so that's that's where it started. Was with just a simple exchange program in high school. Do I understand this? Did you go to college in Australia? I spent a semester there. At semester, the okay. Yeah. Yep. That's how was, I mean, and that, that again, one of the seven continents you've been on, um, uh, again, a, a big, a big switch there. You wrote a piece a few years ago about, about extremists not wanting to thwart your, your travel plans. And, and that appealed to me. I, I visited refugee camps in Algeria in uh, 2010, uh, before that area, it was starting to become a hotbed of activity. My, I have family members who thought I was crazy for going, um, but it was a fascinating trip to Algeria. You have talked about about this issue of being in hot spots and not wanting to let extremists deter you. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, I mean, you have to be smart. I don't have a cavalier attitude about it. I mean, I'm very self-aware when I'm traveling to a place where, especially as a woman, that might present some challenges. And I've certainly been in my share of uncomfortable situations. But the thing I've learned, the more countries I've visited 
And as I've kind of, you know, reached that number of having visited more than 40, 40 countries, I've been reflecting on what I've learned from that. And I think there are a couple key lessons I've learned from my experiences elsewhere. One is that we have much more in common with people elsewhere than we don't. Um, and, you know, whenever I'm traveling around the world, there are people who have an appreciation for America, they're, they have an appreciation for our ideas, um, and they might not have those same privileges where they live. And so that always leads to a very um, interesting conversation. And that the other thing I've learned from that is that the people are what are most interesting about the travel. I mean, it's fun to go see all the landmarks and famous places, but um, I've learned more from people than I've learned from any historical sites that I've visited. And so you have to kind of look at when you, it's, I think that's what helps to kind of address some of the challenges of going to places where there might be an elevated sense of danger. It's at the end of the day, you're there learning about people, you're learning, making a connection. Most of the people who live in those places are not the uh, extremists who might cause harm to you. They're just everyday people trying to make a living. And so that's kind of the lens through which I look at my travel. You know, it's funny because I think about this in moments that I've been in some city internationally and you see somebody walking or you see somebody on a bicycle just doing some everyday activity and you 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 it to me it brings home these are real people they they live here and you wonder what their lives are like and you've spent time talking to those kinds of people haven't you yep absolutely i mean that's when i come back from a trip that's the part that i remember more than anything do you have a happy place some some favorite spot that you <laughs> like that you keep feeling like you get drawn back to well, I keep going back to Australia. I've been there many times. Okay. So. Um, but I also have, the more I've traveled, the less I want to be in cities. I like to be out in the middle of nowhere. So sure. um, I've spent quite a bit of time in the Australian outback. Um, oh, wow. Like in very, very remote communities and um, places where there's no one else around. So those are kind of the, those are the things that attract me at this point. That's that's fantastic. Now, now we got to turn our attention to one of my favorite subjects, uh, which is bacon. Uh, you wrote yes. the, the book Bacon, A Love Story, uh, 2009, uh, which is a, a must read. Your love letter to bacon. Talk about your love of bacon. This is a funny story. Um, so it started as kind of a joke. I started a blog back in 2005. Um, it was actually, I mean, I'm, I've, been, I've worked in politics my entire life and I've um, done a lot of work with grassroots campaign management. And back in 2005, as digital tools like blogs and social media and um, we're starting to become more common and more used. It was clear that was going to be an important part of politics moving forward, and I wanted to learn more about it. But I didn't want to start about a blog about bacon or a, a blog about politics. I wanted sure. to start a blog about something else. And so I went out and had cocktails with my brothers one night, and we came up with the idea to start a blog about bacon. And nice. um, I had absolutely no idea at the time that bacon was about to have this massive explosion in popularity <laughs> and to become this like thing that people talk about on the internet and social media. And, um, I stupidly found myself in the middle of that. So wow, no, yeah. <laughs> it just kind of took off from there. Um, I ended up starting this blog about make bacon that got, so that was somewhat popular, got some traffic, a book packager approached me. We pitched a publisher. <laughs> I got a book deal. Um, none of this was a plan. This is all sure. stuff that just kind of happened by luck. So, but it was a fantastic experience. I mean, most people don't get that opportunity to write a book and, um, I'll never do it again. It's actually a lot of work, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoyed the process. Do you, do you have a favorite bacon? Still have a favorite bacon? Um, or a I, favorite use of bacon? 
they, uh, this is like, this is a book. This is something I yeah. can write a book oh, yeah. about. Um, I, when I was writing the book, I spent a lot of time in rural areas of Kentucky and Missouri and places where people still make bacon in sheds in their backyard. I mean, that's sure. kind of where the bacon industry started. And so um, my favorite bacons are some of those from, from some of those families. They're not names that you would ever know from going to the grocery store. Um, there are places that you would know because you just happen to know that family because you live in their community. And so those are, those are my favorite bacon. Some of like, there's one family I met with who's been, their family's been making bacon for over a hundred years. They still make it in the old style to the point where, um, you know, the whole point of bacon is that you cure it. So it has a shelf life to it. Most bacons these days don't have the level of salt that bacon had back then, um, and need to be refrigerated, but this family is still making bacon that they could throw up on a shelf and it would be fine six months later. Wow. Um, yeah, it was cool experiences like that that were really the highlight of the whole project. I got to ask you, because, uh, you know, I, I recently rewatched the the America's Test Kitchen, you know, uh, testing of bacons and you sort of bacon sort of run on the range of sweet, salty and smoky. Where do you sort of fall in? I mean, what kind of are you uh, do you are prefer smoky bacons, sweet bacons, salty bacons? Or do you like it as a good balance? Somewhere in the middle. Like, I don't want it to be too smoky. There are some that go too far and it's just too intense. Um, but I also, it, it needs to have some sort of flavor to it, that kind of umami or whatever flavor it is. I mean, I like the balance of all those flavors coming together. You know, it's funny you say that because there's a, a restaurant where I live that they'll do a sandwich with bacon on it. And I don't know what they did, but was they, they've chosen a bacon purveyor where the bacon has no flavor. Yeah. Right. You know, and that just, you know, it's like, what's the point? I mean, what's the, what's, what, what's, yes, it, it really is. And then, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's all, it's all good. I've never done that. You know, my brothers and I, we, we smoke meats, we do competition barbecue. I think I've got to go down the road of curing and, and, and making my own bacon. I think that's, that's a project there. I agree. So what's next for people united for privacy? You guys are, you know, we're, 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 Facing the midterm elections, we're going to have a, a possibly a different political landscape nationwide after January. How, what are you guys looking at? We're already looking forward to and planning for next year. Um, one of the one of the key pieces of work that we do is we have a bill, a model piece of legislation called the Personal Privacy Protection Act that we're working to get enacted in the states. It's been signed into law in fourteen states already. Um, <clears throat> the law builds on the decision in Americans for Prosperity Foundation v. Bonta, which. Basically, what the bill says is that no government official or elected official can demand nonprofit donor lists outside of any existing campaign finance framework that exists in the states. They can't just randomly say, I want your list so you can do business here. There has to be some sort of law behind those requests. And if that information is requested or accessed or released to the public, um, there are fines associated with that. So... We are looking at another uh, close to a dozen states where we're attempting to pursue this wow. legislation next year. It's going to be a very busy year. <laughs> um, and we're looking to move into kind of more purple and blue states. We've spent the last couple of years having a lot of conversations with groups and elect officials, elected officials on the other side of the aisle about this issue and why it applies to everyone, why it's important to everyone. And we've actually made some progress in convincing Democrats that they should care about this just as much as Republicans. So we're looking to expand that conversation and to continue getting this bill passed in as many states as possible. How, how can folks find out more about the work that you guys are doing? Unitedforprivacy.com is our website. So that is the best place to go. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Well, Heather Lauer, thank you so very much for joining us today. This has been the Lunch Hour with the Federal Newswire. I'm Andrew Langer. Enjoy the rest of your lunch. 
This has been the Federal Newswire Lunch Hour Podcast, hosted by Andrew Langer. Check out the Federal Newswire's family of websites, as well as their social media stream 